What will it be like when we discover other sentient life in the universe? What questions of faith, sociology, science, and love will be uncovered? What parallels will we find with life on this planet? Will we learn from the colonizing mistakes of the past, or are we bound to repeat them? Such questions are the purview of philosophers, theologians, anthropologists, scientists, and science fiction writers. Like, I think I was at a really questioning faith place. Mm -hmm surrounded by this very you know, order that is such a central part of this book. So I don't know if I would have picked it up at another point in my life, if it would have been so impactful, but because of where I was, maybe the age that I was and being surrounded by that and really having my own sort of faith investigation, not crisis. I never felt like it was a crisis, but just really trying to figure out what I believed and compared not compared to others, maybe a little bit. Um, I think it meant so much more. Today, a conversation about Mary Doria Russell's novel, The Sparrow, a stunning and fascinating novel exploring interplanetary space travel, Jesuit religious tradition, the divine, crises of faith, scientific discovery, human and interspecies relationships, and the role of absolution and forgiveness in healing trauma. A book that took me 20 years to read and was well worth the wait. I'm Keaton, and this is The Rhizomatic Reader a podcast designed to bring people and books into conversation across space and time. Today's guest is Holland Saltzman. I met Holland 20 years ago when I completed a short summer internship at Webster University in St. Louis, Missouri, where Holland also worked. We connected over our love of books and her dream to open an independent bookstore a dream I saw come true in 2014 when Holland opened The Novel Neighbor. Holland has a vivacious love for life, maintains a deep passion for and connection with her home state of Kentucky, has an effervescent personality and boundless energy. We recorded this conversation in January of 2021. How did you get into reading? Why did you become such a prolific reader? Look at all these books behind you. How do you do it? I don't remember starting. Like, I don't remember that first book at all. I mean, it just, it, um, my parents were not big readers. I mean, I remember my mother having the latest Danielle Steele or my dad reading Westerns, like if we maybe went on vacation, like they had books around, um, but it wasn't. And none of my siblings growing up are readers at all. My older sister read, uh, she was a devout mad magazine um, and um, comics. She loved all that. Uh, but yeah, nobody else was a big reader in my family. We didn't sit around and read. And if we were taking books on vacation, it was pretty much me. Um, I remember the library uh, in town in Bardstown. 
the public library because my dad worked in town, um, had different jobs. But at one point, I think when I was in middle school, he worked in town. So I would go up to the library. We could walk from school. I could go uptown and kill time at the library until it was time to go home. And I would just walk over to his office. So I remember the library being a huge part of reading. I remember when they would have their summer reading challenges, like Mm -hmm. I would fill out, I think it was like 50 books or 25 books and I would Mm -hmm. finish it like in two weeks. I mean, Mm -hmm. because again, I don't mean there's no, there's, there's none of those books like we have today. I mean, the fantasy and the realistic historical fiction, like the, I mean, the amount of books that kids have to choose from today from when we were growing up, it's crazy mm-hmm. um, and amazing. And we didn't really have graphic novels. We did have comics. I remember reading Family Circus books. I loved Family Circus. So I, I read a few comics. I mean, I think every kid goes through a Garfield phase as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are sort of more of my memories than one particular book that launched it or one particular age I just always had it. Um, When I was reading around the clock, probably late middle school, high school, the books were really thin and they were all goofy romances. I mean, it was boy, girl, you know, you know, whatever, whoever was the underdog, some kind of strife would happen and then they'd get together at the end. I mean, there was a whole series of books. uh, I'm sure I can come up with the imprint that, I mean, just read them by the gazillions and then there was a series called sweet valley high oh that yeah had to do with oh, elizabeth yeah. were you team elizabeth or team jessica yeah and uh, i had i mean I, I probably had that whole collection um at some point and then i remember moving into vc uh, andrews and you know all the flowers in the attic and kind of that and then I got like sort of into a creepy phase with uh Clark Mary is it Mary Higgins Clark maybe my mom had a little bit of that and there was just like I just got into some real creepy dark twisty kind of books and just sort of again none of them that like that were that memorable but just you know devoured and easy reading but this is all middle school high school this is all middle school high school and then in college, I, I do remember a particular class that that's when I started reading like Invisible Man and we had to read All Quiet on the Western Front, some things that are kids do in high school now. But I remember, you know, starting to sort of, because I didn't talk to anybody about books. I mean, I didn't even, I don't even know that I traded many with my friends. Like, so that was like the first time of sitting around and even talking about books. And then, you know, between my six majors that I switched to (laughs) over the course of four years, um, I uh, was a Russian major for a really short amount of time, uh, like a semester. Um, But I loved the language. I loved the classes. It was all right during Glasnost. And so we were having, we were one of the three colleges that got to have exchange students with people coming from the Soviet Union. And so I took a Russian literature class, which was also phenomenal. Um, So that was also very um, important, you know, et cetera. I remember there's pictures. um, There's a, I was a little sister to fraternity and somebody was posting that they'd found pictures of us on vacation. A group of guys and uh, girls had gone on uh, to a beach together and I'm laying out, you know, in all my glory, getting as much sun as I can. And one of the guys is next to 
to me reading. And it said, remember when Holland made us read it to her. And I totally had forgotten about this, but I'd brought it, but I didn't want to not get sun. So like the guys, a couple of the guys had already read it. So they would just take turns reading chapters of it to me on the beach, which I was like, God, what a life I had. (laughs) (laughs) That's like, oh my God. I want someone to le- read to me again while I lay on the beach. That was, that was, I'm glad I could talk people into things at a certain time. You really are like one of the most prolific readers that I know. So how did your reading life develop, you know, while you were working at college and university over your adult life? Now I just, I'm, I'm also really interested in what you're, how you keep up with reading while running a bookstore and a business and. Yeah. I just think I probably always had a book because I always loved also bookstores. Like I could always, we had a little bookstore in Bardstown for a while and I can remember spending time there. Can't tell you what, but I just, I loved being in a bookstore forever. I loved Barnes and Noble. I loved Borders. When I moved to St. Louis, there was a really cool um, bookstore called Library Limited. And it just was one of the few, I was a single person in St. Louis, knew no one, you know, and there were sure happy hours and some things like that, but I was like nerdy. I was like, maybe I'll meet someone at a library limited event. And I know, you know <laughs> right. Right. So you just, so it just always, I loved bookstores and, you know, I can remember taking Cullen up to Barnes and Noble and he would be sitting there they'd have a train table and he'd play on the train table while I went through like seven different books to figure out which two could come home with me. Um, so I don't know. I've just always read. Since opening the bookstore, how do you feel like your reading life has changed? So you have to be reading ahead. And so in the publishing industry, they have early copies of the books called advanced reader copies. And so they'll send you those or you can download digital copies of them. So you need to be reading way ahead six months to preview what you want to carry in the store and what you don't want to carry in the store. Mm -hmm. And some of them you request, some of them publishers send you because they're excited about them and they want them to be hot. And, you know, there's publishers that want you to do, you know, you know, just yesterday I started stacking up. So they quit doing a lot of the arcs during COVID, but they're starting to come back a little bit more now. But it's like, I look at every arc that comes through adult wise. I have a, uh, Melissa's our children's coordinator. And, you know, I brought 14 books home. (laughs) I can show you the stack in the other room. And that's on top of the 40 that are in my room that I have. I have a rule that I have a bookshelf in the bedroom and I have to take books off that. Like I can't have any more than that technically in the room. So then I have a bookshelf out here of books that I still want to read. They've come and gone by the, they were all arcs but I still want to read them at some point. So they make it out here to this bookshelf. And then sometimes this bookshelf will get, and then we use these uh, when we're done with them for like blind date with a book um, and things like that at the bookstore. So it's just, you know, I, maybe it was my second year. You just, I just go and I look at that shelf or I, as I'm checking them in, I'm just like, man, I'll read this one. I won't. And so like one of them was this book called um, the one in a million boy, which you know, I knew the author from actually uh, being a neighbor of one of uh, Buck's cousins in Maine. And she'd written a book on the Kennedys and I had read that. So I just picked this. I was like, oh, I remember her. And so I read it and it's probably my favorite book since I've opened the bookstore. Anyway. So how, how quickly can you get through books now? Because I mean, you obviously have to read so much. 
do you feel I like could read a, I could read a book in one evening of a regular size paperback if I ignored my life, my kids didn't have a glass of wine. As soon as I have a glass of wine or a bourbon or some yeah. gin, I'm in front of the TV. I'm not the person who goes to take a bath with a glass of wine and a book. I'm like, I have my glass of anything and I'm done with like, yeah, drinking and reading never has worked for me. Um, but if I, if there's something that I know I need to get through, then if I start reading at like say six or seven o'clock and truly read straight through, I can finish a book in you know, four or five hours. Um, and just, so then, you know, so when I'm, when I'm on and I'm excited about reading, I, I can read a ton and then I'll go two weeks and not pick up anything because I, for whatever reason. So the Sparrow, Um, (laughs) you told me when I lived in St. Louis with y'all for three months and I was leaving, uh, you told me to read this book and I bought this book. I'm not joking. I bought this book in the summer of 2002 and I never read it until this year. (laughs) So it's, it's been with me through multiple States and (laughs) many, many moves, uh, why is this, you, you always said this is your favorite book. Yeah. Why? What's interesting is, and I'll sort of back into it. I reread it again before I opened the store because I knew as owner of a bookstore, I would get asked, what is your favorite book? And I didn't want to say it if it, you know, I hadn't read it for probably 15, 20 years. And so I went back and reread it. And I was like, yeah, I can still say it's my favorite book. Mm-hmm. And then I went back and reread it before talking with you yes. because when I realized we were going to do a deep dive into this, I, I was like, oh, we're not just talking like, oh yeah, that's my favorite book. Wasn't this fun for five minutes? We were, we were deep diving. And so I went back and read it over this past week. Um, but the first time I read it, I think also this, and when people do read it, I mean, I think I don't know. Well, I mean, it's almost going to have to be spoiler alerts if we're going to deep dive and talk about it. Oh yeah. We tell everybody that it's spoiler alerts. Okay. So go read it before they listen. So, um, but when I picked it up and I don't know how it came to me, I don't know if someone recommended it, but I was working at St. Louis university at the time, which is a Jesuit Catholic institution. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. And I had been on a couple of retreats and, you know, we had Jesuits that lived in the residence halls. We, you know, they were, they were everywhere. And I, I spent maybe a smidge of time, maybe during orientation or something like that before I worked there, learning a little bit about the Jesuits um, because I had been brought up Catholic, you know, didn't do much in college, but, you know, parochial school, high school, um, you know, we would have our own retreats and things like that. Um, but I think at the time I had been on a, Je- I had been on a retreat led by their Jesuits or maybe their campus ministry or something like that. And like, I was just like a faculty person on one. And then I was a participant on another. Like, I think I was at a really questioning faith place mm-hmm. surrounded by this very you know, order that is such a central part of this book. So I don't know if I would have picked it up at another point in my life, if it would have 
been so impactful, but because of where I was, maybe the age that I was and being surrounded by that and really having my own sort of faith investigation, not crisis. I never felt like it was a crisis, but just really trying to figure out what I believed and compared, not compared to others, maybe a little bit. Um, I think it meant so much more. Mm-hmm. So how, how did you react to it this third time through? I paid so much more attention to the dates because, yeah. you know, it takes place in, you know, 2014 through 20, maybe 17 or 18. And then it takes place in 2060. Exactly. So when I was reading it, probably 95, 96, when I had first moved to St. Louis, um, that sounded like so far away that it just, you know, but this time the dates of it are just, it's funny. I just, I was more aware of the, they meant different or I don't know. I was just more aware of the sort of time of it. And maybe because I'm also older, it, um, the time that they lose upon travel and then coming back and then the age difference of coming back and things like that being, you know, sort of at a different point, um, sort of being closer in age to Emilio um, now than <laughs> the beginning. I don't know. There's just, it still held up though. I mean, it just, it absolutely, I remember, but I will fully admit there was like a couple of things that I forgot that are really significant. And I, and maybe I just wanted to block them out um, because I know what happens and I know horrors that happen and I know all the bits that I loved, but I just remember, I just knew them loosely and then I, for, I forgot a lot of the important stuff, not important. Yeah, probably some important stuff. So then well, all of a sudden, I mean, so, so it was still shocking to me a couple of points. And I was like, oh, I forgot how hard that was to read. Which part specifically? Is it, is it specifically the end when you finally get to confession? The, in the confession of what had happened to Emilio. Yes. That was always remembered. And I remember... Uh, um, Sapari, I'll never know how, who can ask. I, I, I knew there was something twisted there. I knew, I knew, I remembered all the horror of that. I forgot why, um, he killed, um, Ascama. Ascama. Yeah. I was going to say, I don't know how to pronounce that. I, I, I forgot that he killed her and I forgot why. Mm-hmm. And so from the very beginning, when they asked him about that, I was like, oh, that's right. And then you read this, such this beautiful relationship about them mm. the whole time. And I'm like, why, why, why? And I forget. And I totally just had blanked out and forgotten why that had happened, even though I'd read it twice. So that I'd for, completely forgotten about that this time. Yeah. Well, I think one of the great, you know, it's all at the end, right? That this is a almost 500 page book. And you know from the first pages that Emilio clearly killed a child. Yep. <laughs> he is, can, uh, you know, they accuse him of being a prostitute. There's all this like sexual tension in the book. And it's not until the last 10 pages or 20 pages where you really get resolution to that. So I'm pretty impressed with like this author's Mary Doria Russell's ability to carry that tension through 500 pages in a way that's really beautiful. Like you said, it's really, really beautiful. So uh, 
circle back to like the faith question, because that's a big part of this book. How do you like, how do you relate to that question of the faith, the, the underpinnings of all the questions of faith that come up, not just for Emilio, but for so many of the characters in the text, including the Jesuit priests who are trying to help Emilio when he gets back to the planet. I, I don't know. I think there's definite points. Like, I think you, you know, there's so much, there's so many, uh, you know, to use the cliche of peeling back layers of an onion Yeah. with, you know, depending on who's talking about Emilio or him giving glimpses into himself or something like that, you realize that he sort of went into this, uh, the Jesuits for many reasons, but none of it is because he felt like this crazy soulful calling. Mm -hmm. He felt maybe a little called that this might be where he is, but you know, there's a lot of talk about soul and there's a lot of talk about like, you know, feeling God and, you know, really being aware of God's presence. And I think that you don't, he doesn't feel that for most of his life um, on earth. Um, And you know, there was a statement when Anne gets really angry about something and she says something about like, why does God get all the glory, but people get all the blame just for once. I'd like people to blame God. And so I think Mm -hmm. that summarizes, you know, a huge part of every, a lot of people's struggles, no matter where they are, what faith they are, you know, what, who they fall um, it, that there's that tension now and forever will be. I, I think many people have experienced like a moment in their life. And I don't necessarily know, like when you've been like, so full of joy, like there's just a perfect moment. And if you're lucky, maybe you have 10 of them, you know, I don't know, but I know, you know, and if you haven't had one, that makes me really, really sad, but there's just moments that you're just aware of everything being okay or something being so beautiful and so amazing that like, there's just this stirring, you know, for most of the time we all go about our days and we do what we do and things like that. But I think that what they keep trying to get to is there's just these moments and they're not clearly defined and there's not certain paths to them. And there's not certain necessarily religions that are going to get you there. And, you know, for a couple of, a lot of these characters, they couldn't be more disconnected. But, you know, you see like some of the uh, lay people seem more connected than some of the Jesuits, you know, just from the way that they act. Um, So I don't know. I just think it speaks to, I think the struggles for all the different characters are very tangible. That things that everybody's gone through and felt that way and been angry about or been... Or when they start talking about this, this moments of like, oh, this is what I'm here for. And that's, you know, that, that was, I think when you get to those last 20 pages and things are happening really quickly and pieces are coming together and for all the reasons that were good and joyful that Emilio literally thinks that his whole life was to take him to this, take him to another planet and have these experiences and be the person but so quickly that all shifts and all these horrors happen. And so how can it all not be divine? It can't just be the good that's divine and not the bad.
I, I'm really struck as I was reading the book around the question of like how the Jesuits seem to have this kind of always questioning attitude toward God. I mean, even, uh, I think his name is Giuliani, right? Father Giuliani, right? Yeah. They, it's not like other religions where you have this unquestioning faith that God is leading you in the right direction or, you know, whatever. It's that you're supposed to doubt. And that, that is just one of the things that I really took away from the book. Cause uh, you know, DW, you know, yeah. he's like a, a queer cowboy from Texas <laughs> that fell into the Jesuits. Emilio is this kind of kid from the slums of Puerto Rico who falls into the Jesuits. It's just really fascinating to think about the fact that you can question your faith and still be accepted by yeah. the religious tradition. And it, there's just, and there's no answers. Like there's just the questions that they bring up though, I just think are so, I mean, it, nothing seems to be done for, no one's pushing an agenda. No one's, um, no one's trying to talk anybody into anything, you know, every step of this crazy way. And I think you mentioned a little while ago, you know, the sexual tension and that also, you know, that the fact that you're always going to have tension, sexual tension with men and women or however you identify and trans or things like that. When you have people, you're going to have sexual tension. You're going to have interest. You're going to have disinterest. You're going to have people who like other people more. Like there's always going to be that. But then that added layer of a Jesuit in the middle of this and everybody's like, curiosity like it almost he almost ends up talking about like abstinence with every single person in a different way and in a different context because it almost um seems not fascinating maybe and curious because so many people are like this is ridiculous you can't have a relationship and mostly when you know he and Sophia seem to have this mm -hmm. crazy connection you know everybody is just like I think we've heard for ages, it's ridiculous that priests, brothers, whatever, can't marry and can't have relationships and things like that. And so I think the way that Emilio keeps kind of explaining it over and over and different to different people is just, it's pretty incredible. But as a reader, you're still like, I don't get it. <laughs> well, I don't get it except in the sense that it's, he sees this denial of bodily pleasure as part of this like faith walk that he's on, right? Like the, the fact that he remains celibate, even though he clearly states that like he wants to have sex with Sophia or, I mean, he even admits at some point in the book, if I remember that he masturbates, right? He's yes, like, oh yes, yeah. yeah, you know, like, of course, priests masturbate. Like this is not, yeah. yes. <laughs> this is not a thing like, oh, you're celibate. So you never have any yeah. sort of like sexual feelings. And, but am I right in remembering that he, he did have sex before he, is that incorrect? I don't Before? think he did. One of the Jesuits was married actually, and maybe some else, but if I, and I just reread, but I could be wrong. We might have to, we might have to do the Google okay. uh, to see, did Emilio Santos, um, 
did he have sex? I don't remember that because I remember it just seems like the whole time. I, th- I think I remember one of the conversations that somebody was like, never, because because okay, in talking yeah. either with one of the Jesuits or one of the crew, they were talking about how some people did and then came to forgiveness. You know, some some Jesuits mm-hmm. had and, you know, but I just think he oh, I think still when he's talking was, to John. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's still never until until the terrible thing that happens to him at the end where yes. you, you think that, you know, he is a prostitute. I guess the reason I was thinking about that is because I'm also very I, I'm personally intrigued by the by Sophia's story and the questions that it raises because she kind of in you know she has this sort of parallel these two parallel prostitution narratives that come up in the in the book right the fact that she did sell her body when the Turkish you know the Kurdish war was going on in Turkey and her parents were killed but then she's also seen as this kind of like intellectual prostitute because she ends up getting into this agreement to because she's brilliant right of course you know and she becomes this master computer manipulator to build all these ai sequences that allow all of these things to happen in the first place so the whole I theme a... of prostitution is yeah. fascinating to me in the book um a friend of mine read it and she sort of missed that whole part of prostitution with Sophia at the beginning, like she thought she did, they caught that she was under someone else's care, but they just, they thought it was a financial debt, maybe from the family or something like that, Mm. that, that they were using the word prostitution in a different way, but somehow from, they just, they missed that whole part until the end. And they were like, hold on. um, And had to kind of go back and figure it out. Yeah. Which is interesting. Did that friend like the book or not? I think they thought it was fine. It didn't change their lives or anything. It wasn't. Yeah. I love the book. I mean, I don't think, I don't really even think that it's, it's classical sci-fi yeah. in the sense of there's not there's it felt more anthropological to me than yes. anything like once they get to the planet even the stuff about getting there with the light years and stuff it's it's not heavy like crap like the stuff that you experience on the ship is just stuff about you know they sit around and they play cards or they play chess or they like are growing these plants and like I think the only, I just have to warn people if I give it to them, that there is interplanetary travel. There are other species. There is other language. <clears throat> so I at least have to give them, but then I say, but I say, ultimately it's about relationships and, you know, some of the relationships that I'll never forget, but I think anthropological um, is another good way that you could definitely tell somebody about it. Yeah. I, Cause just when they get to the planet, you know, there's two questions. It's fascinating to read about how they uh, sort of think through the issues related to learning the language, the figuring out whether they could eat the food, all the, you know, there's like some science stuff in there. Um, So that's one of the issues that's anthropological, but then just all the stuff about trying to even figure out their society. And I kept trying to think about 
what is she, what is the author saying about certain things that might be problematic? Like, for example, farming is the thing that ends up leading to this disaster that you talked about, this massacre yeah. that it led to imbalance on, I guess the planet's name is like Raktar, right? That's how yeah. I'm saying it, Raktar. Um, I don't know, like those are some of the things that I pulled out in terms of these big philosophical questions that come up because even the first page of the book says this thing about like, you know, the Jesuits never meant to cause any harm. Yeah. And yet there's all this, I mean, you can argue, is there, you know, all the harm that comes to the planet, but also all the harm that comes to the crew, to the Jesuits themselves, obviously to Emilio, is space travel worth it? Like, is she trying to get us to think about whether we should be doing this or not? And I don't, um, I, I don't know that I weighed anywhere. I waded through that thought of more, and again, reading at mid nineties and her writing at mid nineties. But then when you're reading the, when you're reading it now and seeing the power of the few that control the many. Okay. I'm glad we're going here. No, I mean, I just, and so I just, I think that that conversation is still being had now. And so I think I'm curious more to um, what in her, what in Mary Doria Russell's. So I did get to meet her. Um, she oh, actually was one wow. of the first, she's one of the first authors who came through St. Louis and her book, um, was it doc or was it the one afterwards? She was started writing some really great Westerns. She wrote one about doc holiday. That was really good. And then, mm -hmm. uh, the Earp brothers. Um, and there's a sequel to this. Do you know this? Yeah. I'm going to read it this summer probably. Cause I'm super, I'm, I'm obsessed with this book now. And then it, I'm going to tell you like the nut, another thing that I got obsessed with that matches with this book later. In the okay. Yeah. Well, it's yeah, no one loves it as much, but you know, it just, people didn't want the story to end mostly when it ends with we're going back. Right. Exactly. Then you're like, Oh, so, yeah. So anyway, so I, I wonder, I I'm curious about her background, her experience to have such commentary about that. Um, you know, at the time, was she more looking at it? Like it was a reflection of Nazi Germany you know, with oh. Hitler and things like that. And so that, you know, there were so many more people, but you get, you, but if you have, you have one person in charge who starts to say that this is how it's going to be and you rise up and then those are the people who have the power and the money and the weapons. Or, you know, was there, was she involved in any of, you know, civil unrest and the civil rights movement? And was it more commentary on, you know, that conflict? Because it reminded me of both. Um, and so this time it more reminded me of um, Black Lives Matter and things like that, because that is, you know, so current contemporary daily. Um, whereas I think when I read it in the mid nineties, I think I more reflected back on, I, I think I had this sort of Jewish connection with it to see, but, but I think that had to pull from somewhere that there, there's some commentary there that, this group just decided 
because of, and it's maybe because of how they're built and their talons and all those other things. I don't know. Well, it's, I mean, it, yes, all of those things. It also makes me think about how complicated it is because it seems like on Rackat, the social structure, right? You've got these two different species and Supari is from one species. They're kind of like the, you know, aristocratic class. And then you've got a, a, a class structure within that, right? Like Supari's yep. whole issue yep. Yep. is the fact that, you know, he's a third born and they've got very strict sort of social constructions on that uh, planet around who can and can't reproduce. And then you have the Runa, the, there's all the gendered stuff, right? Like that the women are in charge of commerce and and, yes. and the men are the caregivers. I, I love all that stuff. But, you know, there's this quote on page 379 where Emilio is, this is one of the things I sent you a note about because it really does make you think about what is the, what is the larger commentary that she's trying to make? You're saying you're reading it in terms of Black Lives Matter, in terms of the few having control over the many and what happens when the many rise up? Is she making a commentary that the many end up getting massacred? I'm reading it not just through those lenses, but also through the lens of climate change. And, you know, on 379, one of the things that Emilio says in terms of the Jesuits judging the way that they structured their society is that Emilio says to the other uh, Jesuit priests on this panel, you know, there are no beggars on Rakat. There's no unemployment. There's no overcrowding. There's no starvation. There's no environmental degradation. There's no genetic disease. We have COVID. You know, the elderly don't suffer. There's no terminal illness. And they pay a terrible price for the system, but we also pay on earth. And the the coin that we use to pay is the suffering of children. How many kids starve to death this afternoon while we sat here just because their corpses aren't eaten doesn't make our species any more moral? Holy crap. When I, when I read that, I was like, that is some heavy shit around like, are we, we think of ourselves as moral. And we think that what they're doing there is immoral, right? Like this idea that they, you know, the people who- That, they, that they kind of breed another type of, I mean, a whole nother social class. I mean, it's, I mean, I think they talk about it. I mean, one, I think within that same context, when he's talking about that, they're finally cluing in on how he's explaining what this is going on. And he's like, they're like pets, but even pets are treated better here than some people. Than some so. humans. Yeah. Oh, he calls them domesticated animals. Yes. The runa. Yeah. He says right. the runa are domesticated yeah. animals. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you could unpack that for an entire like uh, class. Like, I think you could take an entire class that you could dissect this book and go into so many philosophical things. And that's what, um, again, I think that that's, it's very interesting to read now because there is such polarity, which again, I'd have, I don't think any of us has experienced this great of violence, unkindness, like pay, lack of patience, lack of wanting to understand. It's, you know, it's, it's, there's two sides. That's it. Like the, it just, yeah, it, it, it comes across. It's, I don't know. It's, I don't reread books ever, you know, 
And mm-hmm. like I said, I One only read re- I just because there's so many more books to read. Oh, and I so I re- reread this one because of, you know, to, to check before the bookstore in this one. But yeah, I just I I get now why you would reread some other books, because I think at the different times of your life. It really means different things or you're affected by different things. you said you took three pages of notes what are some of these things that you were taking notes about well that you wanted some to of talk them about were, or 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 you some were, of those were trying to, to keep, my notes I think I got yeah the yours were way more intellectual mine are <laughs> I'm trying to keep people straight mine were like I kept getting some of the Jesuits confused from the get, beginning and then they moved from Rome um and then so then who is nice well this person's mean and then I remembered ultimately this person's mean but I think he's nice like I just I had to take notes like the crew you keep straight you know you know you got Ann and George you've got Jim you've got you know and then Alan Pace I was like did we care about Alan Pace (laughs) (laughs) I was like did they just have to have a non sequitur, unimportant person. So that when they first died, we realized that it was serious, but we really didn't care yet. I don't know. Um, so anyway, so I think there was a lot of stuff about the Runa that I just, that I thought was beautiful until you learn later how horrible their lives are, even though they seem very okay with it. But like, they don't have calendars. They have no sense of time. They are very, you know, I think um, Emilio talks about how he didn't realize how much he was starved for touch because I think because of the celibacy, you know, maybe he hugged Anne occasionally, or he might've, you know, he taught kids, he did this and things like that, but sort of the intimacy with this child, like he, I don't think he ever realized how starved he was for touch and how they're all just, you know, they sort of move in and out of each other's lives. They all take care of each other. It's sort of commune, you know, and there's all these sort of positive things that they don't, they don't seem to stress. And the way that they sort of welcomed them in is just sort of even funnier about um, this sort of great attitude of like, oh, this is curious. And then, yeah, we'll help take care of you all. And, you know, things like that. So um so there was a lot of notes just about how the Runa lived that I just thought was beautiful. Um, but then you also understand like later they're getting antsy and they're bored and, you know, everybody is wanting to go into the city and everybody wants to meet the next people and these beautiful singers. And I remember the music being much more important the first time I read it. I don't know why. Like, I remember that song being everything and maybe, I don't know, like this time it was like, okay, that's what gets them there. That's what makes them. And I know that's ultimately that they're trying to go meet the person who's then this horrible person, but. You know, the music thing is even conflictual because it's, it's like they're having these music competitions, right? And Sapari is this is like something that I thought was beautiful, even though Sapari ends up being this terrible person, is the fact that, you know, the only access that people on the planet have to like what we would call the arts, music, literature, history. I mean, he's a poet, right? Sapari is a poet. And the only reason he can do that is because he's the third born. So 
even that raises all these like tensions around how they structure their society. You know, the firstborn is what, like the military or something like that. Yeah. The second born is the bureaucrat. The third born is basically like a backup is what they refer to them as. Isn't that what they call him? Yes. Or the, um, the spare, the spare. Right. Um, so yeah, the music, the music is interesting. And I agree with you the, the way the Runa live, it just, I was like, I don't want to go to the city. I want to go live with the Runa when I was reading about it. Right. They're like, you know, Oh yeah. Right. I don't know. So then there's just some quotes that I liked that I kind of did. And then, like I said, but my first two pages are just trying to keep some people straight. Tell me some of your quotes. Um, they slept with mourning as their chaperone. And that was like sad morning. What page is that on? And I don't that? know. I didn't do oh, that good. Oh, you didn't do that good. Okay. No, but uh, they're talking about, I think it might've been after Anne and DW. And so they said that, that they talk about, they slept with mourning as their chaperone. And I just thought, well, that's just a beautiful way to decide to just, you know, when people are, when people have experienced a death and they're in mourning. And so they, I don't know. I just thought that. Um, then there's the whole big thing about Anne saying about God gets the credit, never the blame. Yes. And then Emilio's talking to Anne again. And he said, you've seen the what, Anne, not the why. And the why of it is the meaning. The poetry is always in the why. Which again, he's using the word poetry and then that's what comes in. And then live and remember was a, something that Sophia had programmed on the ship that got him back to earth. Um, I was like, live and remember. Live that's and crazy. remember. You pulled out these really interesting things to think about live and remember yeah that's, well, that's that's she but it was written in hebrew and it is something that sophia had plugged into the ship and that's he saw that on his way back to earth okay which of course he's devastated and not wanting to live and that's the message so he was equally annoyed at sophia and you know again as he's struggling so hard like literally just been put on the ship to maybe make it back to earth or not and that's what he sees is this Hebrew, whatever it is. I didn't write it in Hebrew, but it's live and remember. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's uh, one of the, you know, one of the first quotes you said where you were talking about like uh, the morning, right? That yeah. we slept in morning. There's this other quote when they're talking about the ways that when they're with the Runa and the Runa have this particular way of thinking about what makes people sad, right? There's this question oh, about yeah. the heart. Yeah. And and they say like, oh, that person's sad because you didn't, that they don't have what their heart desires. You should give them what their heart desires. And they're, oh, that's what causes illness. That's what it is, right? Is yeah. like, oh, you're sick. That means that there's something in your heart that you want that you're not getting you should just give that person what it is that they want right. and they will not be sick anymore. Yes. I was like, oh, that's really beautiful to think about it that way. Yeah, because they kept talking about conflict or gel and there's just like, there's not. They're like, because their whole mission is, is this, they're just, they're literally naked of any of that. They just, they are just aware of making sure everyone's okay. Yeah, I mean, even even like there's even going back to sex, right? I mean, there's sexual relations. There's this, you know, th this interesting fact about the way that they mate, and the fact that you know the the woman will not choose. The woman will be 
kind of like, I don't think they call it marriage, but they'll be like partnered. They choose a partner that they think would make a good father or whatever-ish. Right, but that's not necessarily who actually bears, uh, that's not actually the father of the child. Right, which you think is cute and good when he understands it until later you understand it on a whole different level. mm -hmm. Um, When Sapari is explaining, or when he's explaining to the Jesuits why that is the way that it is so that the Sapari are the ones who dictate who they mate with. Yes, yes, exactly. So you, you see the kind of like levels of oppression that, that end up coming in and all of that kind of stuff. But did you read um, her follow-up to this book? I've read all her books. So um, one of them has, there's the follow-up to this one and then she has another just standalone. And then she has this new um, Western, a couple Westerns that she did. And I, I, I say that flippantly, but they're not. They're really good. It was Doc. It was one's called Doc, and the other one was I forget what it was called, but it was about the Earp brothers. And then she just did one, maybe called Copper Creek Canyon or something about um, the miners' rights uh, during the time when um, again she did lots of lots of underdogs, lots of adventures. Um, I would probably no, I probably read it again in five years. Like this is one of my few books that I think I'll go back to again and again. Um, that I just think, like I said, I'm surprised. I'm surprised at what I forgot. I'm surprised at what stood out this time compared to years past. But I, considering it was a book that I read in the mid nineties that had these very futuristic dates, the fact that it holds up, I think it's pretty incredible. Yeah, it is pretty incredible. When, uh, you know, another thing, just when I was reading the beginning of the book, I think one of the first chapters takes place at Arecibo radio tower and and i literally picked this book up probably the week after this after it collapsed oh wow you know it 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 had just collapsed in december like there had been some problems and it and it broke and i thought you know i really do wonder the book makes you wonder if you know do where is the other life and is this going to happen like what is it going to be like when that does happen and again like the questions of faith that breaks down so many that will break down so many people's understanding of religion and god particularly in the western traditions if we find another sentient set of creatures i mean and that's a whole that's a whole nother discussion because how could there not be oh i know i agree with you how could there not be how could there not be in this entire crazy universe how could there not be i mean yeah I'm ready for it. Well, the other thing I was going to tell you was I feel like this book kicked me off to some sort of like, and this is what I love about reading some sort of weird new sci-fi thing that I was not prepared for in my life at all. I loved this book. I'm in another reading group here in Houston. And uh, right now we we do these like little six week segments on like topics Mm -hmm. and our facilitator will like pick a topic and then we do a bunch of deep reading in that area. So right now we're doing like an Afrofuturisms thing, right? So I just started reading Octavia Butler, The oh. Parable of the Sower. And yes. it is like, now I'm like totally obsessed with all of this like dystopian, sci-fi, black futurisms, all this kind of stuff. She's the best. It's amazing. So yeah. I feel like those books talk to each other, The Sparrow and, and that book, because, uh, you know, the climate stuff and breakdown of social society and just oh all of it it's it's good stuff it's good fascinating stuff 
It is. It is. Well, I'm glad you liked it. It would be, like I said, I'm never offended if someone doesn't like what I like, because that's what makes reading so interesting and fascinating. Um, but when you like it, you like it because it's such a multi-layered, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's my favorite. I really, I really loved it. It's, it's great. It's a wonderful book. I'm going to well, read I'm the follow it, up yeah, this I, summer. I, I'm okay that it took you 20 years to read it. <laughs> I know it's so embarrassing, but I, it's I not. feel like- it's I totally like, not. I'm sure you've had this experience though. It's like, I buy tons and tons of books. Like you, I've got way too many. And sometimes I just buy a book knowing I want to read it, but now's not the time to read it. Um, and then it just, when it's time, it comes to you and you do it and it's amazing. Um, and that's why I think it's perfect because you might not have gotten what you got out of it now 20 years ago. I mean, you yeah. might've gotten something completely different, but that's okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Holland Saltzman is the owner of The Novel Neighbor, an independent bookstore in St. Louis, Missouri. After 15 years in higher education administration, Holland was looking to create a space for carefully curated books, a showcase for local and independent artists, as well as a community gathering space and that vision for The Novel Neighbor opened in 2014. She founded The Noble Neighbor in 2019 after seeing the need to connect authors and books with underserved St. Louis school districts. Holland has always loved reading, and some of her favorite children's books are The Secret Garden, When You Reach Me, and Isaiah Dunn is My Hero, as well as her all-time favorite adult fiction, The Sparrow. You can follow Holland on Instagram at Holland Says. You can follow the novel Neighbor on Instagram at Novel Neighbor. I'm always open to your comments, suggestions, and insights. Feel free to email me, rhizoreader at gmail.com, or contact me through our Rhizomatic Reader Instagram account at rhizoreader. You can listen again share this conversation, and rate our podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. You can find a transcript of this conversation and show notes on the episodes link of our website, www.risoreader.com. Our theme music is composed by Leo Sokolovsky, copyright-free and available on SoundCloud. All music in today's episode is copyright-free and used with appropriate permissions. My name is Peyton, and this has been The Rhizomatic Reader.